Counterterrorism operations in Janine, Israel's judicial reform back in the forefront, and what is the state of media coverage of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? All that and more on this week's Jewish Insider Podcast. Ruth Marks Eglash is the author of a brand new book, Parallel Lines which tells some incredible stories about young women in Jerusalem. She's the senior correspondent for Jewish Insider. Previously, she worked as the communications advisor for Israel's ambassador to the United States and the United Nations. Before that, she was the deputy bureau chief for the Washington Post in Jerusalem for eight years. And before the Washington Post, she worked at the Jerusalem Post as the deputy managing editor and social welfare reporter. Ruth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. So Ruth, after a long career in hard news and journalism, this is your first uh, debut novel called Parallel Lines. Tell us about how you went from being a journalist who covered you know, hard or straight news into, into writing this novel. Well, you know, I've been covering uh, hard news from Israel for uh, more than 20 years, and uh, there's so many restrictions on the media, on journalism, and I had all these stories that I collected up over the years. Uh, I spent 13 years working for the Jerusalem Post, uh, eight years at the Washington Post, and I was just gaining more and more uh, stories that I wasn't able to uh, put into news stories, you know, the side stories, the experiences that I had going out into the field, talking to Israelis, talking to Palestinians, talking to ordinary people as well as politicians, and I felt like, you know, there needed to be, I needed to an outlet for it. And, uh, you know, when you write a news story, you have maybe 700 words, 800 words, maybe 1,000. Uh, when you write a book, you have 90,000, 100,000. So you have much more space to go into details. There's, no, there's less restrictions on what you can write. On the other side, I was feeling increasingly frustrated with uh, the challenges faced by the media in covering the conflicts here, not just the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but also the conflicts within Israeli society. It's increasingly harder and harder, and I know it probably is the same in the United States as societies become more polarized. Uh, the news is dismissed as uh, biased or fake or one-sided, and, uh, and I felt like I needed a place where I could write from all sides, from all angles. And that's essentially what I did in Parallel Lines. And, and just for our audience, uh, hopefully everyone has read the initial takes uh, that, that have been featured in Jewish Insider. Uh, but maybe just give a quick uh, teaser uh, for those who are thinking about uh, getting the book uh, of your three uh, main characters uh, and what you're trying to achieve in the storylines that you're telling and also the context in which this book is taking place. Yeah, so essentially this book is set in Jerusalem and it uh, has three main uh, female protagonists. Uh, Tamar is an Israeli, a secular Israeli. Noor is a Palestinian Muslim. And Rivki is an ultra-Orthodox Haredi Jew. And they all live less than a mile from one another in, uh, in the northern parts or northern suburbs of Jerusalem. And yet they never meet. Their lives, they cross paths, but they... They cross paths uh, on the light rail train, which runs through the center of Jerusalem and through all the neighborhoods, but their paths never actually 
their lives never actually intersect. They live completely separate lives. And I try to capture really what it's like to be a teenager. Each one of the of the women in the book are 16 years old. And uh, I really wanted to capture what it's like for uh, young people growing up in a city that's uh, always under conflict, always in the spotlight, always uh, has these tensions going on around them. And that's essentially the es- that's a, that is the essence uh, of the novel. And I read a little bit in Jewish Insider's coverage on sort of you know some of the tensions that that you're that you'll find in the book uh, as far as uh, somebody you know wanting to date somebody of, of a different uh, religion or a different uh, religiosity level and, and interactions and hate people feel and resentments and interactions with siblings. Obviously, there's a lot of this that 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 goes on. Is it representative of a lot of people or are these sort of exceptional stories that you had picked up on, gleaned together that make this a bit more of a compelling storyline? Would people come away with the saying, oh, this is what normal life is for these three typecast characters? Or is it still a little bit sort of sexied up, if you will, for, 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 uh, for book purposes, you know, sort of you would expect from, from a thriller or, uh, uh, you know, nonfiction or sorry, fictional novel or, or a, a show on Netflix? Well, I, you know, I carried out the research for this book in a very methodical way, in the same way that I would for a news article. And I actually met with uh, young women from each of the three different uh, uh, communities that are depicted in the book. Um, the Israeli Jewish secular uh, character Tamar was was the easiest for me to access because she is very much based on my daughter's experience. I have uh, three uh, Israeli-born children, and they were growing up in Jerusalem. They all grew up in Jerusalem. And uh, my middle daughter, Geffen, she uh, spent a lot of her time going into the center of Jerusalem to go to school. Her school is really like in the heart of Jerusalem near uh, Zion Square, near on Hillel Street. And she had many of the experiences that were described in the book. I spent time with her classmates and I talked to them about what it's like to be a young secular Israeli, uh, Jewish Israeli uh, living in Jerusalem, what it's like to be a teenager there. I also met with young uh, Arab uh, Palestinians from East Jerusalem I met with uh, ultra-Orthodox uh, Haredi uh, uh, young women uh, who, go, who live mainly in the Gula area in the religious neighborhoods of, uh, of the city. And a lot of the stories are based on the stories that they told me, on the experiences that they had. I think that when you talk about uh, exceptions, Jerusalem is a city full of exceptions. It's a city that is Every rule is an exception. And sometimes when you write news stories, or often when you write news stories, you actually go by the rule. And you just uh, you look for the lowest common denominator to tell your story. Whereas when you have fiction, you can go into these nuances. And that's what I try to do to show that there is no there's no clear answer. There is no right and wrong, you know, and I'll tell you, (laughs) I don't think I've ever told anyone this yet, but actually in my daughter's Jewish school, there was a, was an Arab boy studying there. So in contrary to what you, what people think that there's all these divisions and no one is together, there was an Arab family that decided to send their children to a Jewish school in Jerusalem. And this young man 
was in my daughter's class all the way through middle school and high school. And they became very close friends. So, you know, there is everything in there is an everything in Jerusalem is an exception to the rule. And did I take some creative license? I, I did because it's fiction. And I had to keep telling myself while I was writing it, this is not uh, an article for the Washington Post. It doesn't need to be uh, uh, 100% uh, factual. Um, and I think that that's the power of fiction. I think that this that fiction can appeal to people's hearts and minds in a way that journalistic writing doesn't. And you know, so we saw Ruth and uh, in Daily Kickoff and Jewish Insider, you had this amazing interview at your book launch, and in his last official act as ambassador, uh, Tom Nides, U.S. ambassador to Israel, interviewed you about the book. How did that come to be? And and tell us a little bit about that experience. You know, I got I've got to know uh, Ambassador Nides uh, over the last uh, nearly two years since he arrived here. And he uh, he's been very open and, and warm and to the media. And uh, when I was thinking about my book launch, I thought, you know, I really want someone who understands the situation and realizes that we're at a stalemate and maybe we need a different approach. And so I approached him <laughs> and asked him if he would come and join me at the book launch. And he was very, very positive. He was very welcoming. And I thought maybe he might cancel at the last minute because, you know, he's an ambassador. He has other things to do. And it's his last few days before he returns to the United States. But he was uh, he stuck to he kept his word and he came and we had a very interesting discussion exactly about the things that we're talking about here, about how um, how there needs to be a different approach to uh, the conflict here, how there are. you know, these, this language that politicians use, that uh, diplomats use when they're referring to the conflict, and it doesn't really reflect the reality on the ground. And that's very much what I felt during my years reporting for the Washington Post, that uh, in, in the State Department and in, uh, in the White House, there were these sayings, we need a two-state solution, we need a two-state solution. But when you go out in the field and you talk to the people, and you travel around uh, Jerusalem or you travel around the West Bank, you see uh, a different reality. It's not the reality that was there 30 years ago when uh, Oslo came about. And that is what everyone is still talking about. They're still talking about Oslo. And now we have these young people. I mean, the people in my book, it's set in 2015. The young people in my book were born during the Second Intifada. They don't remember Oslo. They don't remember the Second Intifada. They only know what's happening now. And what's happening now is a stalemate. And on top of that stalemate, you have these young people who are pressured by political slogans. They're pressured by their peers, by their families to behave in a certain way. And I really wanted to explore the possibility that that young people could push back and say, well, we don't want to do it this way. We want to do it a different way. And we're not just going to follow the masses and go out and protest or go and, um, and you know, join the extreme views. We, we want to find a way to live here. And that was the sense that I got from the young women that I interviewed for this book as well, that they all realize that they live here in this city, in this country, and they want to find a way to live here together. Ruth, it's interesting when you, I hear you talk about these things. 
uh, I I'm brought back to sort of my childhood, teenagehood, early college years, uh, going through Oslo into the Second Intifada, and it was very in vogue on college campuses. Uh, a lot of funding from the U.S. government for programs in Israel. Some of them are still funded today. Uh, of trying to bring the you know two sides together and exchange views and have dialogue, and if we could just put each other in the other side's you know shoes and see the conflict from the other side's perspective, that we would you know come together. And people have tried to fund summer camps and in all kinds of different projects. It never has seemed to really work. Maybe there's some great stories you know here and there, but it's the conflict has obviously not been resolved through this process. Is there any reason? that you believe it could work now and or is there a different way of approaching this that could work that simply failed in the past? I think, I mean, I also remember those times and I've been involved in many programs uh, for journalists uh, from the Israeli side and the Palestinian side. And I remember those years of dialogue and talking, and I know the international community has pretty much given up on that in terms of this conflict. Um, and I, I'm not under any illusions that uh, that the sides is suddenly going to come together and start talking. I mean, I think on both sides, we're seeing more polarization than ever before. And not even just here. I mean, the whole subject of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict sparks this polarization around the world. Everyone has an extreme take on it. But the problem is that denying the narrative of the other side is not going to get anyone anywhere. And in the meantime, there are these young people that are living here and growing up here. And unless there is some acknowledgement of the status quo, as they say, or the the state of affairs here, then it's just going to get worse and worse. So I really felt like, you know, I have this capacity in a novel to share the narrative of of all sides. And I'm not just talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I'm also talking about religious secular conflict, which is growing in Jerusalem. The divide between religious people and secular people is, is uh, is a daily tension in Jerusalem. And both sides refuse to to see or recognize the the views and the narratives of the other side and in a newspaper you can't you can't do that but in a book you have a cap well hopefully you have a captive audience and they will sit and read it and i i hope that people will read my book and take into account the other side's narrative and realize you can deny it as much as you want but it's still there so that's a you know that's a good segue um, to ask about some of the ongoing political disputes in Israel today. Obviously, uh, for months now, um, mass protests back and forth. They seem to ebb and flow about judicial reform, the proposed judicial reform. It's been back in the news a lot more in the last week to ten days. What is your take of? of how it's going um, and what do you, what do you think is going to happen next as it re- relates to the proposed judicial reforms by the Netanyahu government and the street protests that are, that are seen to be happening every day? Well, you know, these protests, they haven't really ebbed and flowed. They've been pretty uh, stable, pretty regular every single week. 
Um, last week, we saw spontaneous protests after the police chief in Tel Aviv uh, said that he was standing down. Um, today, we're seeing a response to legislation that passed its initial readings in the Knesset. Um, but there is a, a, you know, a core of people, and I would say ordinary people, who are very scared. And this just goes back to my point of polarization in society. It's not just Israelis and Palestinians. It's within Israeli society. There's this the, the, this separation and no side is willing to listen to the other side. And really the scenes that I've seen uh, yesterday evening, Monday, and today, Tuesday, have been quite shocking. I've never seen anything like that. I've been covering Israel for tw- more than 20 years. And I have not seen scenes like this. I mean, you you feel it everywhere um, on the streets. Uh, to this morning, not far from where I live, there were protesters, hundreds of protesters, who blocked the main, you know, highway into into Jerusalem. I've I've never seen that happen before. So I I mean, there is very high intention here. Um, you know, there's obviously a political situation that has arisen through, um, I'm sure that you've covered this on your show extensively, the political turmoil in the Knesset, the makeup of the of the electoral system that has allowed, you know, certain, that allows for small groups to kind of dictate the agenda. And that has really what's led us to this point. You know, we talk about a democracy, but we're talking about small political parties that make up this coalition. And they are the ones who are making decisions for the masses. And I think that that's really where the you know, fault line lies, that people are making decisions for the country that the majority of people, or maybe half the people, are very much against. Or, and they're very, very scared. There's a lot of fear. A lot of fear. Maybe... It's something to do with the speed at which this government has tried to roll out these judicial reforms, or maybe it's to do with the fact that they're trying to change a part of the constitution that needs to have more broader consensus in terms of changing it. And the scenes are very uh, extreme today. I I think we're going to see more of those in the next few weeks. Uh, I'm curious, obviously, you've covered uh, Ambassador Nides and some of the back and forth that's gone on uh, between uh, the ambassador and and members of of the Israeli government uh, during this debate. We saw President Biden in his interview earlier in the week talk about the most extreme elements of a government in Israel he's ever seen and obviously has weighed in on judicial reform. Have you found the issue of America's views on this, the president's views on this, uh, the ambassador, to be something that anybody actually involved in the debate cares about other than some political echelon scoring points? Um, or, Or is it actually something that people are talking about? Either they're happy he's speaking out or they're really upset you know, the U.S. is is somehow meddling. What is the perception on the ground of the U.S. role in this debate? No, I, I think there is a, you know, I think Israelis look to America very often for approval or for a validation of, uh, of things taking place here. And obviously, Biden, President Biden's uh, comments or his approach to this uh, judicial reform process has been, uh, you know, Either used by the protesters to, you know, com- you know, validate their their position 
and it's also been attacked. I mean, you probably saw today there were comments by the Diaspora Affairs Minister, Amichai Shikli, uh, accusing the the White House of, uh, of backing or supporting somehow or uh, promoting the judicial pro- the protests against the judicial reform. And, uh, and yeah, it's very, very much, you know, everything that, that Ambassador Nides, Nides uh, says about anything to do with the political situation is headlines here. You know, I've always found this sort of a fascinating debate about, you know, what level of say, if any, does the, the U.S. alliance with Israel get it in, in the Israeli, you know, in Israeli body politic, in policy. I know most, you know, there are many who believe, you know, Americans should just be quiet and let, you know, a free and sovereign democratic Israel do its own thing and not get involved. And, you know, as a general rule, I think that that's correct. But, out, you know, there are some guardrails that I think that, you know, we, we as a country would express with any ally uh, that we have a deep and abiding, you know, friendship and, and very strategic uh, relationship with that. Like if you see things that are happening that are just that not good. And I guess is your role to just document the what you're seeing or do you sort of take a position one way or another? I know it's really tough these days to be a, a sort of unbiased observer in what's going on in, in, in the Israeli body politic. Or you just want to see sort of a solution that, that you know, preserves democracy in Israel and, and moves the country forward? I mean, I, I think that's an excellent question because I w- actually was just discussing this today with a fellow journalist, Israeli journalist of mine who works for Channel 12, which is the main uh, television broadcast uh, news here. And it's, it's you know, Israel is such a small country. Everyone is involved in this. You know, I have my my neighbors where I live and they say to me, are you coming to the protest today? And I say, listen, I can't come to the protest because I'm a journalist. And on the one hand, I, you know, I go and interview, you know, I did a a very long interview a few months ago with Simcha Rotman, who is the uh, Knesset member who is pushing through the judicial reforms in his, uh, in the committee for, in the judicial uh, and legislative committee in the Knesset. Um, I am in touch with uh, uh, Minister Amichai Shikli. You know, I have to be in in contact with the members of the coalition in order to do my job. So as a a citizen or even as a journalist, I feel that I can't go and protest. Um, But it is uh, worrying to see what is happening. And I think for me personally, to see this tension between society you know i have even in my own house <laughs> there is uh, there is a tension on this issue where you know people don't uh, my amongst my you know children who are now at an age exactly at the age where they are where they want to be involved in politics and they want to go to the protests so or they don't want to go to the protests and they think the protests are are really bad and disruptive and they they get upset with them so there is a tension really in a, in a microcosmic, <laughs> micro, micro level um, that really brings, it, uh, really brings it into every household. And I feel as a journalist, it's very difficult to, to, to stay away or to, you know, people just keep asking me, why aren't you coming to the protests? 
or people assume that I would be, um, maybe because I worked for the Washington Post, um, that I would be uh, against the, the automatically against the government. And I try as best as I can not to express uh, an opinion, but it, it from but it does look very worrying for me about how divided society is on this issue. It's worrying. My joke, my my joke to everyone is, um, hey, just if you want to get a free flag, I mean, just get out there. I mean, like every tourist that gets off the ground, I say like, hey, just go outside and get some free flags. Uh, <laughs> no, it's uh, listen. I you asked where I think this is going. I don't know. I mean, this is really. Uh, uh, I mean, I covered the social justice protests in in 2012, I think it was, when people were out in the streets and or 2011 uh, protesting the high cost of living in Israel. Uh, at that time, I was the social welfare reporter for the Jerusalem Post and people were camping on Rothschild Boulevard in Tel Aviv. And that felt pretty tense. But after a few months, when the kids went back to school, the parents packed up their tents and everyone went home. And then there was a, a war and then there was an election and, uh, and Netanyahu won again. This time, I don't know. There are elements in this government that I covered, uh, that I wrote about in the past, who have really pushed very extreme views, very uh, racist, uh, made very racist comments not just about uh, uh, Arabs or Palestinians, but also about reformed Jews, uh, liberal Jews, secular Jews. And, you know, it's very, very divisive. And that is what is uh, concerning. The thing that I found amazing to me, though, was we've now seen multiple moments where the IDF has been ordered into what could become a much larger conflict situation. We had the initial tests by the Iranians, a multi-front uh, rocket attack coming in from Lebanon, from Syria, from Gaza. Uh, and we, we saw the immediate strike from the IDF into, into Islamic Jihad in Gaza that could have escalated, didn't. But it seemed like the nation rallied. The Janine operation that we just saw, it seemed like the, the nation still rallied, even while people are planning you know, their, their massive demonstrations and disruptions. There's some unique thing in Israel that at the moment of greatest dissent and disunity, there is still incredible unity on the core essence of defending the state. I mean, I think that is true, but I I don't know if it's wise to test it. Because when you hear in Hebrew uh, from pilots who say that they don't want to show up for their reserve duty, or you see a letter from... Uh, uh, you know, hundreds of reservists in the intelligence units who say that they're not going to stand for uh, for these changes, constitutional changes, then you think, well, you know, maybe there's a limit. Maybe there is a limit. And maybe, and that's why I say maybe the pace of these reforms are, are going too fast. And I think a lot of people agree that the judicial system needs changes. But the way, the singular way that certain members of the coalition are pushing this through is a little too fast. And we've heard it also from people within Netanyahu's own party who have expressed the, that same sentiment that it's going too fast, that, it's, uh, that it's, it's singularly trying to make a massive change. And instead of working to, instead of working to convince uh, you know, the public that this needs to be done, 
the politician, these these freshman politicians are coming in and saying, this needs to be done. We're, this is why we're here. We only have a, a, a small window to do it while this government's intact. And we're going we're gonna to do it now, whether you like it or not. And I think that that might be, you know, that is the, you know, the red, the red flag. Ruth, a couple of questions on the state of who's covering Israel and how are they covering them? Because, you know, you're, you're a longtime journalist, uh, and, you know, an Israeli, you, you, you have written for the Washington Post, you, you know, so you're a longtime chronicler of the country and of the conflict. Who do you think covers Israel the best of the international media? And, and who do you think is the worst? You know, I think it's, I, I think I said this earlier, it's very, very challenging to cover um, Israel. Very, very challenging. And, you know, especially when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's such a conflict of narratives. It's true that every few months there's a uh, uh, an operation or flare up in violence or there's uh, or there's clashes or, or however you want to term it. But in terms of, of covering Israel, it's really a, a battle. The majority of the time, it's a battle of narratives. And when journalists come in, it's very difficult for them to, first of all, wade through the narratives, um, listen to both sides trying to convince them. And also, it's very hard, um, you know, to to not become part of the story. And I think in a way journalists have become part of the story. You see, you know, I don't want to say who's best because you see uh, a story that is pro-Israel and then you see, uh, I don't know, pro-Israel maybe from uh, the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, or one of those uh, more uh, conservative uh, media outlets. And you say, wow, they're, they're, they're supporting Israel. And you take their article and kind of wave it towards the pro-Palestinians. And the Palestinians might take uh, an article that was written by uh, the Washington Post or the BBC and say, look, you know, we, we have or Al Jazeera, or look, we, we're right, we're in the right. And so journalists have become part of the story. And I don't know if anyone is, is reporting. I don't know if there's a way of reporting accurately. I think that the truths and the facts are very, very subjective for both sides. And I think that there needs to just be, I mean, I think the best way of doing it is just to try and be fair, just to try and be fair. Ruth, can we, I want to get one more, we should have one more storyline here we would like your take on, because we could for sure go on on this topic all day. Um, but I, what do you, what do you make of the current uh, sort of, will BB visit the White House? Is it only going to be President Herzog? And, and has President Biden sort of stepped in it too deep in terms of his, his uh, critique of the Israeli government and, and the judicial reform? Uh, what do you make of all that? And, you know, has President Biden gone too far in his critique? Is it having the, you know, the opposite of the desired effect in Israel? Um, is a visit by President Herzog enough? Um, or without Prime Minister Netanyahu visiting Washington, it sort of uh, speaks to um, some kind of uh, issue with the alliance. I, I think the alliance between Israel and, and the United States is very solid. I mean, everyone that I've spoken to, interviewed in the last few months will, will say that. And obviously, you know, I covered, uh, I covered the tail end of uh, 
President Obama's uh, term administration, uh, when relations between uh, you know the U.S. and Israel appeared on the surface to be very, uh, very uh, uh, fragile, um, and I don't think that we're at that point yet. I think Herzog's uh, visit will will be a very send a very good message to both sides that there's still strong ties. Um, President Herzog is a an amazing statesman and you know he's managed to build ties with countries that where Israel has had strained relations for many years I was actually with him when he traveled to Turkey uh, last year um, so I think that his visit will go a long way and I think eventually uh, um, President uh, Biden will invite Netanyahu to the White House I think uh, that they've you know they've they've known each other they've been friends for many many years I think at this point, it's probably not even wise for Netanyahu to go on any trips. He needs to be here in the country. There's so much that he needs to deal with that uh, an overseas visit for him is doesn't feel like it should be at the top of his agenda. But I'm not his advisor, so I don't They'd, they'd be calling the plane saying, turn it around, <laughs> got to come home. <laughs> I mean, you know, the yeah. Yeah, the the situation here need, needs his attention. So I don't know if he should be traveling yeah. at this point. We have a couple of last questions. We call it the lightning round, where we ask you a couple of things to get to know you a little bit better. Um, these are meant to be, you know, not overly thought through, but just uh, a couple of questions about who you are as a person and as a uh, individual. So, favorite Yiddish word or phrase? <laughs> I'm half Sephardi. I'm not big on Yiddish phrases, but I could say oy vey, I guess. Oy vey, that, that's right. That's a, that's a great one. Rich, go. Uh, favorite Sephardic dish? Favorite Sephardic dish would have to be, um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I have to, I'm trying to think of what my grandmother used to make. Um, I guess uh, her spicy chicken. <laughs> my, my favorite Sephardic dish is shakshuka for, for those listening. Shakshuka okay. is good. I will second that. <laughs> okay. I, and by the way, there is a great, a place that makes a great shakshuka on Flappish Avenue down the block from my house. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> okay. Favorite correspondent in history? I would say that uh, Christina Amanpour, and maybe she sounds so obvious, but for a woman journalist, she's impressive. And she's, uh, um, she's uh, definitely an inspiration. And last, favorite place in Israel? My favorite place in Israel is the, ex I, and I don't take this the wrong way. No, you know what? I will say my favorite place in Israel is probably the old city of Jerusalem. I did not take that the wrong way. I agree with you. <laughs> I was going to say somewhere else, but I will, I will go with the old <laughs> city of Jerusalem because it's so colorful and beautiful. And even in times of uh, tension, it's uh it still has a magic and uh you mentioned my book launch that i did on sunday with ambassador nides it happened in the tower of david museum in the old city and it was just such a an incredible incredible place Amazing. to have a book launch thank you so much ruth thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today uh we look forward to reading the book and to reading your continuing journalism and having you back on the podcast again soon thank you i would love to come back if you like the show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review 
on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Jewish Insiders Podcast. Thanks for listening.